stewardship to which each one of us is called. Every one of us has uh, this or that function of life, an area of life and ministry and so on, to which we are called to leadership. And the Bible does, in fact, have a great deal to say, and I don't pretend that I have uh, understood or that my life is as it should be animated by what the Bible so often does say about leadership. But there is a, a reality in Scripture that uh, is, uh, to me, paramount with regard to leadership. And I wanted to look at three different passages, and some of you have heard me dilate on this not too long ago. It just came up in a class, or I made it come up. You know, I was wandering about, perhaps. But uh, in John chapter 3, I'm going to take you to three different passages, and I want to focus on one element of leadership, that which in my understanding and, 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 and as I understand the Scriptures, is, is at once the most difficult and the most important reality concerning leadership in the Scripture. Uh, it, is, it is very ironic and very, very difficult. It cuts across the grain of all that we, that, uh, we would think of uh, naturally or in the flesh, that the man who is fit for leadership must, in the Scriptures, I believe, is the man who is the least interested in leadership. That is, the man who has no particular ambition. And, uh, you know, by the way, in that regard, we have created in our day, and perhaps this is why I think it's so important to mention and focus on what we're going to mo- uh, think about this morning for a few minutes. We have, re- we have developed a, a what I call a celebrity Christian syndrome. And I know that some of you uh, who are perhaps interested in ministry, that is, in some sort of vocational ministry, and you look about you at the models, perhaps, with which we're surrounded today, and it's easy to fall into this idea that unless you attain some measure of celebrity, and by that I mean you're, you get to be well-known beyond even the reach of your ministry, that is, your personal ministry. And, of course, what's done this to us is media, electronic media. And it's at once, uh, it's, it's a, it's a uh, perhaps an opportunity of which we ought to take uh, make full proof, but at the same time it's a tremendously dangerous and besetting uh, siren song, this, uh, this, this, this uh, longing for celebrity. I mentioned to a class the other day, and I forgive me if it sounds kind of goofy, but, but uh, a couple of years ago, I don't remember when it was, uh, God in his strange and inscrutable providences uh, opened up an opportunity for me to have uh, to be on the radio here in L.A. And uh, it, it didn't last very long. And, uh, uh, you know, we won't, we won't catalog the reasons why it didn't last very long, will we? But, uh, but at any rate, uh, I was on for, and it was, it, was, uh, it was a call-in program. You call and ask Bookman your questions, and he makes something up while he sits there. What's new? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but the point is that uh, as time went by, and not very much time, but as time went by, uh, people began here and there to recognize me. You know, oh, you're Doug Buckman. I listen to you on the radio. And I'd do this, you know. Oh, well, ain't I the one? And, uh, and I'll tell you something, honest to goodness, that just, I, I just, I was uh, assaulted in conscience when that would happen. And, and I think it is so aberrant and so... It is contrary to everything that Christian ministry is about to suggest that what ministry ought to do is exalt the minister. A minister is a servant. Christian leadership is service. You are serving others. And perhaps you are serving in some level of leadership. 
but the besetting sin. And that's what I want us to think about, this, this temptation to, uh, uh, to, to fall into the sin of Isaiah 14 and to think, well, maybe I ought to be the center of this little universe. And maybe people ought to focus on me. Paul was very sensitive to this. And you remember, he, in the list of qualifications, he said it's for, for one who is in elder leadership, he said, you never want to allow one who is a novice, a neophyte, a neophytos, one who is newly planted, one who is immature. You never want to allow a neophyte, a novice, to become a, a Christian leader, be, lest being lifted up with pride, the King James says, and the word means lest being enveloped, be smoked, is the word that's actually used there. It means enveloped in a fog. It means your pride creates such a spiritual fog that you can't see, you lose your sense of spiritual direction, and you fall into the same snare the devil fell into. That's what he says. Lest being lifted up with pride, you fall into the same snare the devil fell into. And that's the snare that, that, that the devil uses to, to uh, I think, entrap those who are, who are in leadership. That is, and I'm making my, myself clear, but the point is this idea that somehow I ought to be the center of attention. And that's what I'd like to contrast here this morning in John chapter 3. There's a marvelous passage here in John chapter 3 and beginning at verse uh, 25. Now, I'm going to take it in several passages, so hang on here in the time that I've got. Uh, we'll go to undone and then we'll quit. Or we'll done to go to the time's up and then we'll quit. But uh, uh, John chapter 3 and verse 25, and without spending a lot of time in the background, suffice it to say that we are some months into Jesus' ministry here. You remember that for some time, and we don't know how long, but for some time before Jesus actually came and began to minister as Messiah and to draw him into himself, there was this marvelous, marvelous man, one of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament, uh, New Testament, a man much to be admired, a man about whom Jesus said that a greater man was never born of woman. There was this man, John the Baptist, who came and, and functioned as the forerunner, the herald crying in the wilderness of Isaiah 40, and the, the servants sent to uh, turn the, the hearts of the fathers to the children of Malachi 4 and so on. So here comes this forerunner, John the Baptist. He did no miracles, and yet he, he absolutely set Judea and Jerusalem and all of uh, the land of Israel on its ear because all Israel came out to him, Jerusalem came out to be baptized. He had a tremendous ministry. And by the way, remember this, it's important to the passage, that John the Baptist ministered in the absence of Jesus for some months. And so when men would come, and John's message was basically this, the kingdom is at hand, this long-awaited kingdom for which you have been taught to hunger ever since the days of Adam and Eve, this kingdom which was defined in its time frame back in Daniel, it's about to come. And if you believe this, if you're willing to submit to this, you need to repent and submit to baptism. And, and literally thousands of people did that. And you know what? In the main, when they did that, they became disciples of John the Baptist. And they attached themselves, as it were, to John. And they would travel with John. And there was a large retinue of people who would travel with John. And John became somewhat of a celebrity, if you don't mind. He didn't seek it. He didn't set out for it. Uh, and he has the right attitude toward it. For a time, though, he's, he's, he's sort of the, the center of attention. Well, finally one day, as everybody else was gone home, Jesus came and John baptized Jesus. And then, of course, as you know, Jesus was thrust by the Spirit in the wilderness for some 40 days where he was tempted of Satan. And then Jesus came out, and he began to go from place to place. Now, this is important. Gathering to himself the disciples who had already submitted to John the Baptist. You know, here he comes to someone who has already acknowledged John's message and been baptized and, as it were, attached himself as a disciple of John. And, Jesus, and John's message, of course, is, there he is. Follow him. Don't follow me. Follow him. 
And so many began to follow Jesus. And by the way, for a time, Jesus began to go from place to place doing the same thing, preaching this message that the kingdom is at hand and baptizing people. It's only, it's only sort of reflected in the, mess, in, the, in the gospel record, but clearly he did uh, go for a time. So now you have Jesus going about, baptizing people, actually his disciples did, and drawing him to himself. And you have John the Baptist with still many people attached to him. You have two sort of evangelistic teams spreading this marvelous gospel. The kingdom is at hand and demanding that men repent and be baptized in acknowledgement of it. But one day, some of the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus. And look at it in John 3. It says, verse 25, There arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews. Now, those are the enemies of Jesus about purifying. But that seems to be just a smokescreen because in verse 26 it says, they, that is the disciples of John the Baptist, came to John and they said, now watch this, Rabbi, he who is with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same is now baptizing, and here's the rub, all men come to him. Can you imagine? In other words, John, uh, John's disciples come to him and they say, look, Jesus is getting bigger crowds than you are. And there seems to be some sort of spirit of jealousy here. Like John the Baptist is supposed to be the kingpin, he's supposed to be the center of attention, and those who have attached themselves to John are a little jealous because Jesus has greater crowds. And the way, folks, here's, the, here's what I'm taking, the way John the Baptist responds, so carefully and marvelously and dramatically resp- uh, reflects precisely the attitude that you have got to take with you into Christian leadership. And I don't care at what level, if you can't take this attitude and spirit with you are you ready for this you have no business exercising any sort or any level of spiritual leadership if you can't take john what did he do well look at it in john chapter 3 and verse 27 john answered and said now wait john by the way i believe was horrified i think john must have broken out in a cold sweat that quick and i i picture him throwing his hands in the air and saying now wait a minute a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. In other words, I'm not going to take to me to myself what doesn't belong to me. I only want the blessed opportunity that God gave me. I don't want any more. Don't give me something that God doesn't intend for me. And he says, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not Messiah. I am not the Christ. I am only the one who is sent before. John had happily taken, remember in John chapter 1, when the Sanhedrinists came to John and said, tell us who you are. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye in the way a, a, a highway for our God in the desert. Highway. And so he is saying, I'm only the forerunner. And then he goes on to say this, and I love this. And I, 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 verse 29, he says, he that hath the bridegroom, I'm sorry, he that hath the bride. What it means is the one who gets the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him or listens for him is what it says, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Now, I mentioned this in class the other day, but to understand what's going on, you have to understand something about the marriage customs of the day. That's mine. Uh, uh, excuse me. Uh, you, you have to understand something about the, the marriage customs of the day. Now, you probably know that a, a couple, a young man and woman, would be betrothed. That is, they would be... Uh, 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 what's the other word? Uh, uh, betrothed will work. What's the other word? Uh, they weren't engaged. They engaged in something very, very different. 
And what would happen is they would come together and in a, in a bit of a ceremony, and there would be a, a contract cut, and they would be betrothed one to another, and, and, and they were married. They were man and wife, but they didn't live together. Uh, the, the woman, the, bri- the, the bride, still lived with the, in the home of her, of her mother and father, and the groom lived with his parents for up to a year. Deuteronomy says that it shouldn't be more than a year. And then after a year, now they're already man and wife, but after a year they were married. Or, to use the, the biblical terminology, the groom would go take his wife. Remember Mary and Joseph, how it says uh, they were already betrothed. Mary went down to Hebron, and then she came back, and Joseph was grieved to see that she was with child and didn't know what to do and was going to put her away. And an angel came to Joseph in a dream, remember this, and said, Fear not to take to thee Mary thy wife. He's al- she's already your wife. Go get her. That's what you would do. And so the point is, after about a year of preparation, and by the way, during that year of preparation, the husband, the groom, would be preparing a home. And you would, you would get the house ready. Now, all it meant, and one of the, one of the, 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 uh, the, the catchphrases, uh, the, the, the figures of speech for marrying was to uh, add, a, add a room to your father's tent. Hey, you about ready to add a room to your father's tent? That means you about ready to get married? Because that's what you did. You took some goat hair and you added a room to your father's tent and you moved right in. But, but the point is, uh, uh, so during that year, the husband, the groom, would be preparing the home and the bride would be preparing her, her adornment, her trousseau, or what do you want to say? Because she actually, well, without getting too deeply into it, it was very, very important. And part of the dowry money and all that she possessed by Jewish law... Uh, like it or not, uh, a, a, a bride could own nothing but what she had on her person that when she when she was wed. And so they would adorn themselves. Remember the woman who dropped the coin and was looking for it? That's more than a quarter, you know. She's, that, that's part of her, of her wedding adornment. And so she would make herself beautiful. And then what would happen was this, that you would go, the groom would go to the home with a small wedding party, would go to the home of the bride or the bride's parents where she's still living and it would be a bit of a feast there and then after that feast as the as the sun began to set later in the day they would they would make their way with some ceremony and pomp to the home of the groom to the where they were going to live and that was the wedding parade or the wedding march and they would wind through the streets and there would be great rejoicing and little children would be throwing flowers and the bride would be all dialed up in all of this uh, Adornment that she'd prepared and so on. And many times they'd take a chair and put it on posts and hoist her aloft and they'd carry her along and there'd be people to extemporize poetry to her beauty and all this sort of stuff. And it was a tremendous... And by the way, this was the, the happiest and most joyous occasion in all the life of Israel. Nothing eclipsed or even matched a, a, a wedding march for joy. And if you were just walking down the street, I always say, if you're just walking down the street, you don't know these people. They come along. You're supposed to stop and dance and clap and get into it and so on. And then once they go on, you pick up your groceries up and you go home because uh, you, you got to share that. I always like to say, you remember, remember when Jezebel was cast down and the Bible says the dogs came and ate her all except for the, remember that? The soles of her feet and the palms of her hand. And the Talmud says that the reason God spared that was because as wicked as she was, when she saw a wedding march, she stopped what she was doing, she clapped her hands and she danced. So, so God spared the soles of her feet and the... Now you can do what you want with that, but uh, that's you know. But but I say all that just to make so so you have this you have this wedding march, and everybody's rejoicing. But you see, here's the point: 
Who's the center of attention? The center of attention is the bride. Everybody's focused on the bride. Well, forgive me, but in Jewish you know, culture, that's not entirely appropriate. So you have to contrive a way to get the focus back on where it should be, the not-so-beautiful, rather homely, but more important groom. And so, and so, honestly, this is what they would do. And it's just a thing that arose after time, but it's precisely what John the Baptist has allusion to here. As time went by, as they, they wended their way through, the, through the, the streets and so on, as they got close to the home where they were going to live, the bridegroom, the groom now, would duck out. He'd just slip off somewhere. Everybody knew it was going to happen, you know, but you just let it happen. And then when they got to the house and you, you, you came in and you were rejoicing wherever the wedding feast was and everybody's celebrating and so on, pretty soon after a little while you start to say, hey, where's the groom? Anybody seen the groom? Where could the groom be? We don't know where the groom is. No fun without the groom. Oh, what should we do? Woe is us. Where's the groom? And it was, it was a little charade you'd go through. But the point is then that there was someone who was appointed. He was called the friend of the bridegroom. He was in on it. And he would say, don't worry, don't worry, the groom's okay. He'll be here soon. I know his voice well. I'll listen for him. I'll tell, him when you're, I'll tell you when he's coming. And so everybody would sort of focus for a little while on the friend of the bridegroom. Now, again, this whole thing was a contrivance. So when, this, when the groom came, everybody, oh, you don't rejoice. Now we can get started and things are okay. And so now the focus is where it should be on the groom. But I say all that just to make the point that for some time you have all of this focus on the friend of the bridegroom. But his only job was to get people all excited about the coming of the groom. And that's what John means when he says, now, wait a minute the one who's the star here, the one who's going to get the bride, the one for whose wedding we're, we're, we're gathered to celebrate is not the friend, it's the bridegroom. And how, how cosmically inappropriate it would be if when the bridegroom came, the friend of the bridegroom thought that he, the friend, ought to maintain the center of attention. Obviously, that'd be foolish and wicked and, and, and a, horrible, uh, a horrible despite to the bridegroom. And John is saying, look, I'm only the friend of the bridegroom. And now that the bridegroom has come, how terribly wicked and inappropriate it would be. And, and, and now please, go back to the situation. John is speaking to those to whom he has been, has, or for whom he has been exercising leadership. These are people who are the converts of his ministry. He's baptized them and trained them and taught them. But what has he taught them? Wait for Jesus. Focus on Jesus. That's the one. Follow him. And now John is horrified, and, and go on in the passage, by the way, because John says, in John 3, he says uh, this, this marvelous verse in verse 30 where he says, and this is where he draws the application together, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I take that to be a determination by John. I believe that what you have here is John's retirement from public ministry. As far as the record's concerned, he disappears. He lives on for some time, and it's some, some months later, six or eight months later, that John goes and confronts one of the Herods about having his brother's wife, you remember, and, and is arrested, and then some months after that is finally beheaded, John the Baptist is. But the point is, John has some months of freedom left, but he never shows up in the record. And I think what he is saying here is, he must increase, and if, it, if it's necessary in order for that to happen, I must decrease. And John actually steps off the stage. Now look, folks, let me tell you something. I really believe that in order, 
in order to achieve, that's not the right word, but in order to be honored, let's, let's phrase it very carefully, that in the normal course of things, those men who are honored with great significant leadership are men, and I say this very advisedly, who do in fact have very strong egos, very strong sense of self. And I say that because clearly John did. John was a great leader. John was, don't think John was some sort of a woos who just, just, just had no stomach for leadership. The man was a tremendous leader. But there was something more powerful than either his commitment to leadership or his, 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 his own personal ego. And that was a commitment. He must increase, I must decrease. And if there is the shadow of a possibility that my ministry, because that's all John's doing is ministry, will in fact somehow eclipse the glory that God ought to get, that is, that Jesus ought to get, that is somehow, that, that it, it would just compromise the slightest way the, 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 the attention, the glory that, that Jesus ought to get, I'm out of here. Now that, that staggers me. I have the most unbounded regard for this man, John the Baptist. And the thing that, 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 that absolutely convulses me more than what he did is what he didn't do. And that is, he, he, didn't, he didn't stay on when there was any sort of a danger that he was competing with Jesus. Now, that's what I meant when I said, as a matter of fact, go, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. No, don't go there. Numbers chapter 20. We were going through this in Sunday school. John, Dr. Stead took us through this in Sunday school just a few weeks ago, or last week, I believe, in our Sunday school class down at Grace. And again, I was struck with this in Numbers chapter 20. As you turn there, let me remind you, I said earlier that uh, <clears throat> if that spirit that animated and protected John the Baptist doesn't abide in you, you have no business in any sort of Christian leadership. And the spirit is, he must increase, I must decrease. Again, folks, I, you, you need to understand. Here's my little... You know, very, very simple formula to take with you all through life and remind yourself of day after day. I don't have too many profound thoughts, and this is certainly not my own, but if there's one profound thought you ought to take with you, and it's terribly, terribly simple, but everything in you, everything in your fallen self rebels against it and seeks to, to make you forget it or ignore it, and that simple truth is what? God's God, I'm not. See? I, God is God, and as Creator, He deserves to be honored and worshipped, and all of the created universe exists to work to honor Him, and that's perfectly appropriate. God's God, but I'm not. I'm a creature, and it is absolutely inappropriate that a creature ever receive the kind of honor that is due only God. Therefore, I've got to remember who I am. He must increase, I must decrease. And that's, that is cosmically appropriate. And furthermore, and this is what I want you to see in Numbers. This is the other passage I want to go to. God won't, won't have it any other way. Now, now we shift gears rather dramatically here. We come to another great leader of the Bible, namely Moses. Moses is absolutely astounding man. Absolutely astounding. By the way, shall we say it all together? He's not what? <laughs> no, that's, that's unfair. He's not incredible. Quit saying incredible. That's what I should have preached on today. <laughs> I, I got this little thing. People use the word incredible for everything. What does incredible mean? Unworthy of belief. That's what it means. Oh, the sermon was incredible. Well, why didn't you stay home if it was 
you know, if it was incredible, I, I just, I've grown tired. I was about to say, I was trying to find a, in my head a, a, you know, a, an adjective for Moses. I didn't want to say he's incredible. It's believable. Believe it. It's in there. See, it's not incredible. He was a credible man. But at any rate, forgive me. I was, I, I first came to this a couple of years ago. I, I had a, forgive me, a freshman class. And I said, just trying to get them talking, you know, I said, uh, give me some one word adjectives for the Bible. You know, one guy said, it's incredible. No, don't say that. Don't say that. Uh, but at any rate, um, got nothing to do with anything. So at any rate, Moses, honestly, though, was, was one of the most remarkable men in the Bible. Uh, read sometime, we won't go to it, but Numbers chapter 12, where God says that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth, but he goes on to say, God says, if ever I have a, a, uh, a prophet, if ever, when I raise up a prophet, I will reveal myself to that prophet in dreams and visions, but not so with Moses. With him I will speak mouth to mouth as with a friend. That's really something. That's remarkable. And there was never another man in human history who had that kind of relationship. You realize this? Moses went up twice into the mountain for 40 days and did eat. He ate and drank nothing. He actually sustained himself with the person and presence of God. He went without food or water for 40 days. And when he came down, his face shone so that the people of Israel asked that he'd cover it up because they couldn't look upon it. I mean, that's a remarkable man. And he was remarkably used. I mean, we could spend a lot of time rehearsing the tremendous impact that Moses had. Moses is universally recognized even today by Israel as the father of their nation. Abraham's the father of the family. But it's Moses who made them a nation. It's Moses who delivered them by the hand of God from Egypt. So you can't say enough, or, or too much certainly, about the, the tremendous impact that Moses had, about the tremendous man that he was, but remember that God used him because he was, after all, Numbers 12, 3, the meekest man who ever lived. But one time in his life, he forgot to be meek. Now you remember the story how that after they were delivered from, the, uh, from Egypt through the Red Sea and so on, Israel, uh, first of all, ran out of, uh, uh, they ran out of water. And so God gave them water from a rock. Later they ran out of bread, and so he gave them bread from heaven. And evidently they were able to fill their store and, and uh, live for some time on the water that was provided that first time, but then they, their water ran low again. And by the way, you need to understand that they had murmured and complained and challenged God, and God had delivered them again and again and again, but, but, God, but they continued to murmur and complain against God. And finally Moses got a little fed up with it. And if you look in Numbers chapter 20, it says... Uh, Verse uh, 1, Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation of the desert of Zin. And uh, there was no, verse 2 there, there was no water for the congregation. They gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And they began to chide Moses. Why did you bring us out? Would God that we had died when our, when our brethren died before the Lord. Would God we had died back then. Oh, woe is us. And Moses gets just uh, more than a little bit fed up with it but God instructs him verse 7 the Lord spake unto Moses saying take your rod gather thou the assembly together thou and thy brother Aaron thy brethren and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes and it shall give forth his water and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock so thou shalt give the congregation their bees drink and Moses took the rod from before the Lord and uh, verse 10 Moses and Aaron gathered, gathered the congregation together before the rock now, you know what he does here. It says in verse 10, He said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up the, his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock. 
Now God had said, speak to the rock, and Moses smote the rock. Moses, this tremendous man of God, this man who had so carefully and meekly served God, is disallowed from ever entering the land. But what was Moses' sin? That's the question here momentarily before the house. Exactly what was Moses' sin? Usually, in the name of uh, honoring a perceived type, it is assumed that Moses' sin was in striking the rock the second time, the type uh, the, the rock supposedly being a, a type of Christ, and Christ was crucified once, and after that he can be approached in prayer, and we don't have to smite him twice. You ever heard that? And so his sin was in smiting the rock the second time. Well, my, uh, my, uh, 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 my disquietude about typology perhaps uh, sort of uh, predisposes me away from that interpretation, but more importantly, keep that in mind. I, I, as a matter of fact, keep your finger there if you will, because I want to come back to it. Go to Psalm 106. In Psalm 106, this uh, this event is remembered by the psalmist, and he tells us what it was that Moses did that so angered God, and that so and and, and it resulted in Moses not being allowed to enter the promised land. Psalm 106, verse 32 tells this story. It says, "They, that is Israel, are you with me?" Psalm 106, 32. They angered him also with the waters of strife. That's Merah, and that so that. It went ill with Moses on their behalf because they provoked his spirit. Now, here it is. So that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. Is that what you've got? Something like that? He spake unadvisedly with his lips. Now, wait a minute. According to Psalm 106, then, his sin was not what he did and what he did, but what he said. What did he say? Well, there's only... Go back now to Numbers chapter 20, and there's not much that he said. What he said is at the end of verse uh, 8, where it says... No, I'm sorry. At the end of verse 10 where Moses says, Here now, ye rebels, must, and I believe this is the sin, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Now just think about this. See, I think the point is that for one careless moment, Moses took far too much to himself. Can Moses get water out of a rock? Absolutely not. And the fact of the matter is, as I understand this passage, what God is saying is this, or what God is telling us through this whole narrative is this that God simply will not share His glory with another. And once a person gets into leadership, and again, whether it's, it's, it's rather significant leadership where you're, you, you gain some measure of notoriety or whatever, or whether you're up in front of people, or if it's just leadership with friends and there are, there are, there are people who look to you, whether it's in your family. Like I say, you're going to have leadership. And when you get into that, pers- that position of leadership where people begin to to depend somewhat upon you. That is, to one degree or another, they, they find their, their spiritual sustenance and so on in what you can do for them. Now, you, we trust it because you're ministering to them the good things of God and you're doing it by the Spirit of God. But the point is that the balance gets a little tenuous there and it's very easy for a person all of a sudden to take to himself, the leader, to take to himself the notion that I'm the one who's providing water out of this rock. And folks, you see what I'm saying to you? The spirit that John was so careful to guard and to maintain is the spirit that Moses just momentarily let slip. And for that, God, God came down hard. I mean, you think all that Moses did. You remember Moses wasn't, he was 120 when he died, but the Bible says his, his, his eye was not dim, his natural force was not abated, he was still healthy and strong. God had to take him. But my point is God came down very hard on this man. Why? Because for one moment, Moses entertained the notion and gave articulation to the notion that maybe he 
was just as important to the mix as God was. Must we fetch water out of this rock? Folks, I don't care where you are. I don't care what ministry God and His grace gives you. I don't care how important you are perceived to that ministry. Mark it down. God can get along without you. Just understand it. And God will if you begin to take to yourself the notion that you and God are pretty much partners in the effort. I think that's what, what Moses did. So I, I don't want, so, so my point is, uh, you know, positively, you see in, 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 uh, uh, in, in uh, John the Baptist this determination never to allow himself to, to be in any sort of, of, of real or perceived competition with Jesus. Jesus gets the glory. I'm the, bride, uh, the friend of the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. All the glory is His. He must increase. I must decrease. On the other hand, negatively, you see, it seems to me, Moses, just for one careless moment, forgetting that reality, and God steps in. And by the way, again, I don't know if I finished this thought. The fact is, I think it's especially important in leaders. God is going to be less patient with a man to whom He has, a, for, to, to whom he has granted some significant leadership. He's going to be less patient when that man begins to forget who he is and who God is than he is perhaps with a man in less significant leadership. One other passage, and you must have known I was headed here, but I'm going to hurry. John 13. It's just, it, it, some of you have heard me dilate on this. It's, it's my, uh, one of my very favorite portions of uh, Scripture. I love to uh, work my way at what, under whatever pretense uh, through the, the uh, life of Jesus. And uh, John 13, you have this marvelous story of the, the washing of the disciples' feet. And I, I think in this you have the object lesson that uh, perhaps supersedes and transcends all others with regard to making this point of what New Testament Christian ministry really is, as opposed to what it may be perceived to be. As, to per, as opposed, and by the way, folks, we have sold our soul, the evangelical world today, to, to, the, to the secularist thinker who thinks he can define for us the best models and, 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 and uh, patterns of leadership. And, 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 and most often they are horribly, horribly flawed. They are flawed by presuppositions. You know what I'm saying? These, these secular models of what a, what, a, what a leader ought to be. But what is leadership according to Scriptures? According to Jesus, I don't think you ever get any, any better illustration than right here. And let me just, just deal with it very, very quickly. I'll set the scene. You remember that this is, in fact, John's narrative of the upper room. This is Thursday night. Jesus is going to be on a cross within several hours. Uh, he, he knows that. As a matter of fact, you look at John 13, and he says, John 13, verse 1, uh, it's an amazing way that John puts this together. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were into the, in the world, he loved them on to the end. And then you notice verse 4, where it's, I'm sorry, verse 3, where it says, Jesus, look at this, John 13, 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand and that He was come from God and was on His way back to God, knowing all this, He rises from supper and takes and lays aside His garments and took a towel and girded Himself. And He begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, to understand what's going on here, there's just a couple of things I need to lay before you very quickly and we'll be done. Number one, you need to understand the spirit that prevails in the minds of the disciples at this time. And it says you really got to work your way through the Gospels carefully, I think, to ferret it all out. But suffice it to say that Jesus 
early in his, or not too far into his Galilean ministry, some year and a half before this, or even two years before this, Jesus had selected 12 men. Now, one of them was Judas, and we'll leave him out of the narrative for now, though he is still in the room, as you know. But he selects 12 men. And to those 12 men, he gives a very special responsibility. He, he, the Bible says that he selected 12 that they might be with him and minister for him. And so he selects these 12 men, and he spends a great deal of time instructing them and so on. And there comes the time when, when it's obvious that Jesus is not going to have the time necessary to completely saturate the land with his twofold claim to be the, the Christ and the Son of God. And therefore, you remember, he takes these 12 and he empowers them. He gives them power to heal all people that came on, come out of them. He gives them power to drive out the demons and so on. And you remember how the twelve go out and they come back and they're amazed that even the demons obey us and so on. So these were men who had tremendous privileges. Furthermore, they, they were given a tremendous promise. It was to these twelve men that Jesus made the promise that they would sit on twelve. When I come into the kingdom, uh, you will sit upon twelve thrones ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. So here were men who had tremendous promise and tremendous privilege. But what happened was simply this. The, the disciples never anticipated that Jesus would die. Now, I haven't got time to develop this, but suffice, read sometime Luke 18, 31 to 34. It's as plain as you can be, as it can be. They never anticipated that Jesus would die. And you can't blame them on one hand, because after all, folks, in the Old Testament, you see, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when Messiah comes and establishes a kingdom, how long does that kingdom last? Not a thousand years. That's that's New Testament stage of the kingdom. In the Old Testament, how long does the, the kingdom last? Forever and ever. So now Jesus comes and claims to be Messiah, and these disciples submit to that. They bow the knee to that claim, and, and they believe He's Messiah, and He's constantly talking about establishing a kingdom, and it's the real kingdom, folks. It's the kingdom of the Old Testament. Jesus uh, wasn't unsaying what the Old Testament said. So here they are. They're thinking, hey, this is great. And furthermore, the other thing you've got to add to this is that even though... Now, this is Thursday. This is Thursday of the Passion Week that Jesus gathers with His disciples and washes their feet, and then after that, uh, uh, institutes the Lord's Supper. But the point is, remember that Jesus has been ministering now for three and a half years by the time we get to this point. Furthermore, everywhere He goes, Jesus is the object of wild-eyed popularity. Not acceptance. I like to use the word fascination. People are fascinated with him. Not to say they accept him, but think about what, let's say, you're one, here's my point, you're one of the disciples. Now, about three, four months ago, Jesus got you alone up into a place called Caesarea Philippi, and for the first time, you never heard this, and you didn't want to hear it when you heard it, and you refused to believe it, and you still refuse to believe it, but nonetheless, several months ago, for the first time, Jesus got you alone, and he said, gentlemen, the Son of Man is going to be taken to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things to the chief priests and scribes. He's going to be crucified. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. So about four months ago, you're one of the disciples. You're sitting here in the upper room. or not sitting. We'll talk about that. But, but you're, you're in the upper room. And uh, you, are, you, you, know, you, you know that some months ago, Jesus began to talk about his dying. You don't know what that's all about. But on the other hand, he's promised to be Messiah. And what's happened in the last several weeks or the last week? Well, remember now, this is Thursday. Last Sunday, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem. And all Jerusalem went out and threw down their garments and cried out the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118, Save now, Hoshana. 
And they began to, they, they called upon him to be their Messiah. Well, you're one of the disciples. You're saying to yourself, man, we're on a roll here. It's going to happen. The kingdom's coming. The whole nation wants him. And then on Monday morning, Jesus went into the temple and he drew, drove out the money changers. And for two days, he possessed the temple. You're one of the disciples. You're saying, hey, wait a minute. Malachi says that his messenger would come suddenly to his temple. The Jews all thought that when Messiah came, he would rule in the temple. He's in the temple. For two days, he possessed the temple. Mark says that Jesus wouldn't even let a man carrying a vessel pass through the temple. Jesus was in charge of the temple. Jesus never behaved so thoroughly messianically in all of his life during those, than during those two days. Well, see where I'm taking you? You're one of the twelve disciples. You're saying, man, oh man, we're on a roll now. Jesus is, is uh, you know, he's received by the whole city, and now he functions as Messiah. Certainly he's about to establish his kingdom. And the Bible says in Luke, I won't take it to you, but when Jesus gathered that night for the Passover supper, that the disciples were quarreling among themselves about what? Remember? Who should be greatest in the kingdom? Who should be greatest in the kingdom? Now, most believe, and you can't prove it, but it's the best conjecture there is, most believe that what's at stake here is that they were quarreling over seating arrangements. Because the seating arrangement in the room was very indicative. There was a pecking order to where you sat. And, and, and especially in relationship to the master. The closer you sent to the master, uh, the more important you were. And I believe that the disciples were convinced that Jesus was going to hand out kingdom assignments on that night. They probably thought he was going to assign the tribes. And there were some squatty little tribes and there were some really important tribes. And I'm a big guy. I'm an important guy. I want one of the important tribes. And I'm quarreling, duking it out and trying to find the spot closest to the, to the, to the, uh, to the master. So at any rate, here they come in. And I always say, when you think of the Last Supper, that's what the picture that's here. This is the Passover, the Last Supper. You need to thoroughly disabuse your mind of the picture that comes to mind of 13 men all seating, sitting on the far side of the table facing the artist on high-backed tutor chairs with individual place settings. You know that they, 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 they reclined to eat. Are you familiar with that? Should I do my demonstration or not? I always, always when I go out. But, but uh, they, they would recline on their left elbow, which explains a lot of things about the narrative, by the way. Especially this business, John, you remember the Baptist, uh, John the Apostle, I'm sorry, the Baptist is dead by now. John the Apostle likes to refer to himself as the disciple who leaned on Jesus' breast. Well, if you understand the way they are arranged, uh, Cody, come up here and we'll do it. Just uh, come here. Uh, no, just, just, just watch now. Get down, lay right here on your, on your left elbow. Ah, quit, quit. Now look, look, no kidding. This becomes important in the narrative. Besides, it's fun. Now, I want you to picture, no kidding, I want you to picture the table here. It's only about this high. It's a low table. And so uh, what you do is there are pillows. When you set the table, you just throw pillows down. And this is how you would eat. And Jesus, if, if, if you don't mind, I'll play Jesus. And you be... Uh, who, is, who, is, who is Cody then? John the Apostle. See, and what happened was, when, when, when they were at the feast, Jesus said, one of you who is here at the table is going to betray me. And the Bible says that Peter made motions to John. Now, I think Peter, by the way, probably lost out in that fight and, you know, on who was going to sit closest. And so just in some big show of humility, he stomped over and he sat way over on the edge of the table somewhere. Can't prove that. But he made motions to John and asked who it is. Well, you see, all John would have had to do was lean back. And when he leaned back, he was whispering to me. 
That's what it means when it says he leaned on Jesus' breast. And I think that's why, when I think what Jesus did then was tell John personally. Have you ever wondered why they let Judas go? See, if they all knew, they didn't all know. Jesus said, the one to whom I give the sock. And then sometime in the course of the meal, he, he took and, and, and pulled out of the, the Passover lamb, sort of a stew almost, uh, a succulent piece of meat, handed it to Judas, who was also near him evidently, and then John realized who it was that would betray Jesus. But later on, when Judas got up to leave, I think the natural inclination of John, being who John was, was probably to try and stop him, but Jesus was here to say, no, no, calm down, that's okay, that's what I want to happen. See the point? Thanks, Cody, that's all there is to it. So, with that, yeah. Uh, now, but honest to goodness, what you need to understand, because this becomes important to the passage, what you need to understand then is you don't have 13 men all sitting at a table with their, with their feet neatly tucked away underneath the table. They're all, you see their feet are hanging out there now. This is the springtime of the year. It's sloppy in Jerusalem. There is no greater faux pas, there is no, viola- no greater violation of social protocol than to go into an important feast, uh, a feast with, with soiled feet. And by the way, the Bible says that, you remember, Jesus had made preparation. He'd gone, I believe, to, uh, to a woman and said, I, I have need of your upper room. Will you make ready for the feast? So everything was there. And one of the things that would be there was a towel and a basin at the door. And I think what you've got a picture is, but there was no servant. Usually this was the responsibility of the lowliest servant in the household to wash the people's feet as they arrived. Now, I can't prove this to you, but again, I, I think you, you can probably picture these. Remember now, the twelve didn't know where they were going except for Peter and John. They, they knew where it was, but nobody else knew where it was until they got there. And Jesus leads them in, and, and I picture them coming in the door and looking at that towel and, and basin saying, not me, man, not me. That's for a servant. I want to be important because we're going to get the kingdom assignments here. So now they all lay down and Jesus begins to teach and he looks around and honestly you've got to understand what a tremendous, as I say, what a tremendous aberration of of social custom it was to see all these filthy feet hanging out there. And so Jesus gets up and you know the story of how he goes about washing. It is, folks, folks, it is the lowliest ministry possible. Washing, you know, how much do you enjoy washing another person's feet? And it's, you know, no different back then. So I come back to it. Because what happens, and I've got to be done, but I'll, I'll just read you the verse that I think, as I say, so powerfully and, and dramatically uh, uh, embodies the, what, what Jesus understands to be ministry. Now, again, I, as I read it, I want you to understand this against the backdrop of what was going on in the hearts of these disciples and against the backdrop of the fact that this is the last time Jesus will have to be with His disciples before He dies. And it's so important to Him to communicate this message to get past this this pride, this arrogance, this self-centeredness that was so so much a part of their, their their lives to this point. And so he goes around and washes their feet. And verse 12, it says, John 13 and verse 12, After he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, he was set down again. And actually the, the Greek says he reclined again. He said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? He says, You call me Master and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. And then verse 14 is the operative verse. He says, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet... Now look up here quick. I always do this just to make a point. But let me ask you something. How would you finish that at your house? If I washed your feet, you got to wash my feet. Well now, folks, if Jesus were here this morning, would you wash his feet? I would. I'd stand in line to wash his feet. But Jesus never asked you to wash his feet. He asks you to wash the feet of the person next to you. Now you see, we're talking something far, far more difficult here. 
But what I want you to see is that is the very definition of Christian leadership. Christian leadership is a desire to humbly, quietly, selflessly meet the needs of those about you. If there's anything else that animates you, if there's any desire to be noticed, if there's any desire to be to, you know to become a celebrity, it's wicked. It's wicked. And unless your passion for leadership is a passion to serve, you see, that's the thing. In, in the biblical model, leadership is being served. Leadership is there, as it were, to be served. The biblical model is leadership is service. If you're effective at, at service, God will perhaps give you greater and greater opportunity to lead others in service. But Jesus said, you call me Lord and Master, you say well, that's exactly what I am. Jesus didn't come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So if that's the spirit Jesus brought to it, he is God. And yet he was willing to take upon himself the form of what? Philippians 2, a servant. So if Jesus was willing to, you call me Master, Lord and Master, you say, well, that's exactly what I am. But if I'm willing to wash your feet, you ought to wash the feet of others. Now, that's not the spirit that Jesus saw in that room. It is very, very interesting to compare the men like Peter and John and so on in the Gospels with the way we discover them in the book of Acts. This John who was so arrogant in the Gospels, later on in his life, he wouldn't even refer to himself by name. He was such a humble man. That's what the Spirit of God does in a man's heart. He excites in you a desire to glorify God by serving others. That's what leadership's all about. Let's have a word of prayer. Let's stand together and we'll have a word of prayer and be done. Our Father in heaven, we, we confess that we are a fallen people and it is the essence of fallenness to be selfish. Father, help us to realize what a temptation it is for us to uh, commit in our own little universe the sin of Isaiah 14 to somehow hope that uh, uh, we would sit on the throne of the universe, that we would be lifted up. Help us to appreciate how terribly and cosmically inappropriate and wicked that is. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we stand here this morning confident of eternity simply because this man who was God, very God, thought it not something to be held on to at all costs, to be regarded as equal with God, and took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient even unto the death of the cross. And Father, we rejoice that now you have lifted that one up. You have highly exalted him. And we look forward to the day when every knee will indeed bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is all that he claimed to be. But, Father, certainly because we are twice born and we have been bought with a price, we ought to do that even today. Our tongue ought to confess that Jesus is the Christ. He is God, very God. And because He's God and we're not, we need to give ourselves back to Him. We need to live our lives out for His glory. So, Father, deliver, deliver us of every selfish impulse, even with reference to leadership. And might we give ourselves back to You. Thank You, Father, for this place and these young people and the stewardship that is ours in this place, we confess that we are terribly unequal to it. But by your grace, we ask that you might make us equal to it and do your happy work in this place. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We're done. Thank you. Thank you.